And that's what the veterans said. It was very emotional for them. Eight of, our, of the veterans from A Company 35th Battalion, Jadaville, travelled, some as far as Mullingar, Tullamore and Limerick. Four out of the eight were based at some stage in Dunabalisa. Quite a number of the veterans that were here and, and retired and unable to come and deceased served on, in Anketka. Civilian people really don't know what these guys went through. You know. And also it's to educate and continue to put it in front of current soldiers in Renmore Barracks. And I mean, I came in, I joined the army 10 years roughly after this happened. We heard a little bit about it, but nothing about the detail really uh, when we were young soldiers and more until, until latter years. That's retired Sergeant Major Dick O'Hanlon. As chairman of Post 30, the Galway branch of the Irish United Nations Veteran Association, he was one of the first voices that guided me on this journey to learn more about the Galway link to one of the most incredible and controversial incidents in the history of the Irish Defence Forces. On the 17th of September 2021, we met in the Memorial Garden of Renmore Barracks, where retired and present members had come together to mark the occasion of the 60th anniversary of the Siege of Jadaville. In September 1961, 156 Irish soldiers on peacekeeping duties in the Congo came under fire. Some of those who endured the five-day siege were soldiers who had served as members of Ancaith Cop Battalion in Renmore's Dune Ivelisa Barracks. For many years what happened to those soldiers was not spoken about or their bravery celebrated. Now some of those who were stationed or trained in Galway recount their journey from Renmore to Jadaville. After signing up for the army at just 15 and a half and training in Clonmel, Tom Gunn from County Tipperary turned his gaze to the West. I was fairly well educated, better than most, because I nearly had my leaving. And I set it up to Galway and Laren Irish. So I went off to Galway. And I remember that the evening I arrived in Galway, it was February 1954 at seven o'clock in the evening, and there was a wind coming in from America across Galway Bay, because the barracks is on the shore. And I walked from the Cavalry Hospital there at Ballybrish down to the barracks. When I arrived at the gate, it was, it was like one of those old forts, you see, silhouetted against Galway Bay. And it was bleak, and it was windy, and it had those big, kind of things that you know the castle things around it and it looked like something out of Dracula you know and here was I 15 and a half in a big gate <laughs> but I went over to, the, to a billet then and there was six or seven fellas around a big turf fire and I didn't know I'd know whether from because I never heard Irish being spoken naturally <laughs> and I was looking down am I in the right bloody planet <laughs> and they made me welcome in the language I went to bed and that was, that was my first ex- ex- exposure to Galway. Over in Kilconley, outside Toome, Billy Keane caught sight of an ad in his local paper that changed the course of his future. In 1959, December 59, I decided that I was going to immigrate to England at the time. And the week, Friday, 
that weekend. There was a big ad in the Tune Herald. The army was looking for 1,800 or something. So I decided I wasn't immigrating. I was joining the Defence Forces. And on Monday morning, I left. My father and mother said, no, he won't go. So I knocked at the door and I said, I'm off. And I had a, a, a bicycle, which I'd cycled in, left it at the SEAG camp in Galway, or in Tune, and got a warden up to Rinmore Barracks in Galway. Right up there at 12. Stayed overnight there, and next morning I was on the train again from Galway to Can you tell me what age you were at the time, Billy? Well, when I left home, I was 19 and 11 months, I think. Yeah, yeah, January, February, 19 and 11 months. From Edgewardstown County, Longford, but now based in Galway, Charlie Cooley decided to follow in his father's footsteps. When I was a young fella, I was working with my father in the convent in Edgewardstown. So was a, he was working for the nuns and they were farmers. And I was working with him and I said to dad, I said to my father, I said, dad, I'm going to join the army. And he says, oh yeah, he says, he says, I'll bring in myself, he said, I'll bring in the army, because he was in the army. And when he went to that loan, he met a man that was in the army with him in that loan. And the two of them hit it off, and that's how I got into the army, by him knowing my father. When I got into it, then I liked it, so I did. And uh, I was in that loan, and then I didn't like that loan because there was a breeze. And now... <laughs> A breeze coming in the grey, in the front gate, and I was running up up to the square where we were. And when you'd be standing out in the square, you'd be passing out with all the cold and everything. And I got transferred down to Galway. They said to me, they said, to anyone here know English or Irish? And I said, I know a bit. They said, what's a pencil and a book in Irish? And I said, Lower August Pan Louie, you're going to Galway in the morning. And I was, I was sent off in a truck and to Galway in the morning. And it was from that, from that was in 1960, and from that day I loved the army. A native of Longford, Sean Flynn, was on the lookout for an adventure. It was a bit of an excitement, you know. So I thought the army would be, be able to go different places. And you were in Athlone and you got moved over to Galway, so what was that like? Um, well, I decided to go to Galway because, you know, it's a nice place, Galway. It's a seaside as well, you know, a nice swimming, so a seaside, grand. Events in Africa would change the course of the four men's destiny. A former Belgian colony, the Congo became an independent republic on the 30th of June 1960. Chaos and disorder followed, prompting its former colonial power Belgium to invade under the pretext of restoring law and order and protecting Belgian nationals. The Congolese government made a request for military assistance from the United Nations. The United Nations operation in the Congo was established in July 1960. Ireland was one of the countries requested by the UN to provide troops to the proposed mission. The army up to that was just... You just played football and you did your training and shooting. It was drab. 
the next thing, the the Congress started in '60, and the rumour came that they might be looking for troops from Ireland. So it came through. Now, I couldn't volunteer the first time. That was in '60 because my wife was expecting her first child. So I went the second time in '61 in June. I volunteered and I was picked. No, I wasn't nervous. It was, it was a big adventure, those was. Yeah, it was a big adventure. A company of the 35th Battalion was led by Commandant Patrick Quinlan. His son Leo recounts his father's path to leading the men. He was based in Galway up to 59, transferred as a commandant to Athlone, so we uprooted, went to Athlone. And then the first thing in Athlone was the floods, and I remember that, and he had called out on the floods. But then 61 came and his turn just came up. Everybody in those days and still were volunteers. So he volunteered for it and uh, they put together a company uh, of about 154 men and this was uh, drawn from uh, Galway, Longford, Mullingar and Athlone. You see, I knew Pat Quinlan because I was stationed in Galway and he was there. And from the first, my impression of him as a young soldier, he was very stern and he never smiled. He, and he went about his business. You know, he exuded confidence and... and he treated you. Some officers looked down their nose at you. But he's the type of man you'd you could you'd like to be led by. Not he he led you, not drove you. You know, and treated you with what we call with not with contempt, but with with um, that you felt you were somebody. We trained for for ambush situations, so we did a lot of training in riot drill because there was rumours of riots. They say. That was what we were being trained for, and the ambush situation. We had a place down in, in behind that loan, and it, they'd have it five or six jeeps would be all there, and next thing, some fellow would throw what would be a grenade out in front and be a blanks, and we'd have to get out and defend ourselves. That was that was basically the, the training. We were all brought down to the corridor to, to get in. our injections, our x-rays, our teeth. You get me? or inoculations in a big long hut we all we went in this end and like a conveyor belt we come out the far end teeth done and not very pleasant and next thing you poked with a needle for yellow fever and then there's small pox another fellow this side then your x-rays weighed and you come out the far side there was fellas fainted and you were in bits now but despite the training, the men were largely unprepared for what lay ahead. We didn't know a thing about it. Not too many of the companies that was formed knew anything about it. I had no idea I was going to be like, you know. I thought it would be kind of uh, peaceful, but it wasn't. Though. <laughs> a company deployed to the Congo in June 1961. Those harrowing scenes, you know, they say they're waving goodbye, and this is a completely different situation to what we ever thought. Once you got on the plane, out, it was just struggle. And then we were off to to a, a Congo in American, big American planes. They came into Baldonnell, Globe Masters, and another experience of massive things, and you're all sitting in rows. And, not an ordinary luxury season, they're kind of a, of a web thing, of, of a net thing, you just sat into it and you buckled yourself in. And we were, we were facing across, wasn't facing, 
hundreds of us with an armour car here, you know, massive things. The good thing about them, they only could fly at 13,000 feet. So a red, if you were a tourist, you had a red view of the, of the Sahara. We touched down in Libya, Tripoli, big American airbase at that time, massive airbase, massive airbase, biggest Westmead probably. The heat was fierce. We we stopped down in Tripoli at 12 o'clock in the day and the heat. And we were in Bull's Wool up there. You couldn't open it. Bull's Wool and hobnail boots. And the sun, you could fry an egg on the side of a tank. And an American and his girlfriend were passing looking at us. <laughs> they thought we were Russians, in fact, with, with, with no other caps. And this young said, I guess, where are you guys going? And I, Deegan, I looked at him, I said, we're going to the Congo, you know. Guess I thought you were going to the North Pole, he said. <laughs> A series of events, including an insurrection in Katanga, the assassination of Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba, the collapse of the central government and the intervention of foreign mercenaries, saw the United Nations operation in the Congo's mandate expanded. We were all hoping we'd be put into a city rather than being put out in the bush. When we arrived, we were put into, into Elizabethville, which was the capital of Katanga. Elizabethville was a town in the region of Katanga, a breakaway state that proclaimed its independence from the Congo in 1960 under Moshe Shamba. Katanga, with its copper belt and lucrative mining operations, was the wealthiest province of the Congo. The Belgians, French and British wanting influence in the wealthy region supported the Katanga movement in practice, if not in name. Despite UN regulations forbidding countries from directly supporting the secessionists, members of the European Armed Forces became hired mercenaries in Katanga's army. We were in an old disused factory which made socks, by the way. If you wanted socks or bits of socks, that's where to go. (laughs) Socks everywhere. Lying on the ground, imagine, just on, on an old blanket. While the soldiers may not have been prepared for the conditions, earlier events involving the Irish peacekeeping mission in the Congo put Commandant Quinlan on guard. Well, I reckon by the time they got out there, they knew they had to be careful because the Niamh ambush had, ha- had happened uh, nine months before when uh, nine Irishmen were killed and 25 Balubas were killed. So they were going out supposedly uh, to keep the peace they ended up enforcing the peace which basically broke the UN mandate and which caused a lot of other difficulties but he was under no illusions that they had to be careful Uh, he understood the macro uh, situation in the Congo from the world situation and the political situation and so on but he also understood the micro level i.e. what should be done on the ground self-protection digging in empowering the troops um, training them for the right thing and he had a a mantra that he used to impart to his officers all the time take care of your men loneliness was a big part of it I I coped with it but an awful lot of people didn't there were some young lads there and they were fierce depressed and everything and only for the the baton sergeants I was in charge of their section, kept them going, kept morale. There was three soldiers there and they kept morale. It was like a big family. 
So when they went out originally, they were doing guard duty, they were uh, protecting the airport uh, because planes coming in and out had to have freedom of movement and the Katangis were tending to encroach upon the airport surroundings. And every now and again, my father's company, who had responsibility for the airport defence or security, used to have to go and nudge them off, you know, in a nice way, the Irish plumhouse way. Sorry, guys, you can't be here. Move up, blah, blah. But in addition to that, which the, it was the first time that a lot of Irish men saw such a thing, you had the Balubas, who nine months before had killed the Irishmen. Now the Balubas were being persecuted by the Katangis, different tribes and so on. And uh, they were being killed by the hundreds and thousands. And they were all uh, fleeing for safety uh, to the United Nations, uh, close to the airport, close to A-company positions. And they set up a refugee camp of thirty or 40,000 refugees. We have photographs of these refugee camps, hovels and so on, and open sewers, etc. And uh, every day and every night, my father used to have to send patrols out into the surrounding bush to bring back uh, wounded and dead uh, bodies because Baluba... Uh, tribesmen, women and children would be coming in saying my father's out there, my son is missing, and they'd be bringing them back. So you had young Irishmen seeing this type of thing for the first time ever. Tom Gunn remembers the tensions on the ground. We weren't welcome, you see, because we were on the side of a united Congo. We were there to, to, to see Katanga seceded and the rest of the Congo couldn't manage without the rich province. And then, with all the wealth you had, the Americans, Belgians, British, Chinese, all trying to get their part of the wealth, especially uranium. Like I said, the uranium for the atom bombs come from there. And the Belgians, they definitely didn't like it. They had that air of superiority. We were interfering with their their wealth and... They wanted to stay there. Then on the 28th of uh, August in 61, this was the first time they were in action, a few weeks before Jadaville, where uh, the UN decided uh, that they were going to arrest Chombe and uh, arrest his bodyguard, which was mostly made up of mercenaries and including Belgian army officers and NCOs who were left behind to train the Katanga army. And they lived in Elizabethville in in a particular compound not far from the president's palace. So it was my father's company who led the raid on this. My father was first through the gates and uh, he planned it during the previous day and it was successful. They caught them by surprise at something like four o'clock in the morning. Then they were sent to Jadaville. Two companies were already out in Jadaville, an Irish company and a Swedish company. And they were withdrawn on the 2nd of September. They decided to to return. It's a mystery who told them to return, but either way, they returned. And when they were on the way back, a message went from the Belgian foreign minister to New York, um, to Dyke Hammarskjöld, Secretary General. We need troops back out in Jadav to protect the white population, even though there were two companies going back. So uh, a company was sent out to replace one company sent out to replace two companies, supposedly to protect the white population. We should never have been sent out there. We were relieving a, a, a company of Swedes and a section of a company were out there with them. And, that, and we were sent out 158 men to replace that. 
poor transport. Communications was non-existent. Company in Cunningham was lucky when he got his message across. But the unfortunate thing about it is there was no communications related back then about what was going on. It was a typical lovely town. Everything, shops, we went, we went in one day and we were lowered in. And everything was a top class, you know. All the jeweller shops and swimming pools outside their houses and they're all lounging around and and go half a mile up the road and nothing but a shanty town. As far as the eye could see, a native or a Congolese, his lot was 10 yards long and about four yards wide and three little sections with a galvanized roof. They slept on the floor up there, the mother and father, the children slept down here and they dined on a, a, um, a fire on, on, on the ground, you see. And sewage run down the street and no, we'd be sent in to search our authority but no signs. You can't imagine the difference between the, the lovely villas and the, the cars and the, everything and next thing you had squalor. They went out to found the white population were not in any danger. The white population were running everything. They they uh, owned the mines. They owned every business in the place. They hired all the local people, and what the white people uh, said went, and that was it. So that's how they ended up in Jadavu. Under false pretenses, I suppose, Correct. really. Mm-hmm. Absolute false pretenses. The school of thought since then is that uh, they were lured out there that they could be held maybe as uh, political pawns if ever needed, and that's really what happened. They were political pawns a few weeks later. The first time I felt it anyway, I was Mr. Lieutenant Carey as my commander, and Sergeant he got four or five of us into a jeep to kind of recon- rec- reconnaissance patrol, you got me? And we come out of the camp, we'd up, Toward Jadaville would be on our left if you're facing south, you know what I mean? Elizabethville is back there. So we came to a, a roadblock and uh, a mercenary came over and I could see the machine guns, you know, looking out. You know, you'd be looking out and they strutted over this mercenary, you know, to left and carry and he started asking this and that and arrogant. You see, the, the Gaul disbanded the Legion in Algeria, the French Foreign Legion, and they all come down. That was 1960, 61, 60. They all come down to fight us because they were well paid. But there was tension, and he more or less told us to go back, and they'd be, you could see the looking down the barrels of these things, so we left. And then they would patrol up and down. Obviously, seeing what, what our positions were. Yeah. We'll call them the enemy now. They were the gendarmerie. They were the, the army of Katanga. That army were very well trained. They had paratroopers. They had heavier weapons than the Irish. They had a jet bomber. They had uh, heavier artillery. And they had an awful lot more men because military intelligence was very bad. And out in the Jadaville-Colwezi area, which is about 100 miles northwest of Jadaville, 
that whole area turned out to be the concentration area for the Katanga army, and there were about 5,000 troops in that area. But Cromlin, when I went into town, with a, probably saw it in the film to get rid of supplies, and he got a poor reception. But you get the vibes. We went, in, we went into Jadaville one night, but we never went back. We were there a week before the fighting started, you see. And I remember the last truck out. I remember the man that was in it. He left on the, the the evening before the fighting started. And that was the last we heard. They went out on the 3rd, and they were attacked 10 days later on the 13th. During that time, they could see the Katanga, uh, the gendarmerie, moving in around them. Uh, there was high ground to the north, and you could, they were moving into that area. And at one stage, uh, they estimated that 1,200 actually begin to encircle them. This was reported constantly back to Elizabethville. The problem was that uh, about 18 miles from Jadaville, you had a river called the Lufirda River. And there were two bridges over that river. You had a railway bridge and you had a road bridge. And just before the fighting started, the enemy blew the railway bridge and had a, let's say, a defend, they defended the road bridge. But before they did all that, I mean, the dogs on the street knew that this was the only way in and out from Elizabethville to Jadaville. And three or four days before the 13th, my father uh, requested permission to take that bridge. Now, there was no war on, no combat, no, no, nothing happening in that regard. So he knew there were only about 10 men on the bridge and uh, enemy. And he reckoned he could go down there with 30 men and just nudge them off without any difficulty. But he was refused permission to do that, which means there's no escape route. The people walking the streets out there knew that we were sitting dukes. As the situation deteriorates, Pat Quinlan takes further action. Pat Quinlan was a clever man. That's John Gorman, a native of Castle Pollard, who was also a member of A Company. He said to us, they were doing patrols up past our camp every hour on the hour. So Pat says, just act normal as you were out sitting in the sun. But we had to dig the trenches at night. You know, so we did. We dug them. And uh, <clears throat> they thought then we had no trenches. We were digging like dig or die. <laughs> and there was anthills, and anthill is about 10 foot high, a termite hill. It was a bit there for a million years very solid and they were sloped up and we dug in some of us on the, on the side of them they were solid as, as coal you know the, the digging was but at least you were you were up if you found an anthill I didn't get one but you were up half you were up about five or six feet up which give you a better view as when you're in a trench you're level with the an only trench you're level with, with the, the ground so your your field of view and field of Field of fire would be okay, but you, your, what you could see would be limited. You know? So we dig the dug the trenches. There was a set way of digging trenches. There'd be two on the slit trench, and a foxhole. There'd be only one. It's, it's a foxhole. It's around. You're on your own in that one. <laughs> and uh, the slit trench is four foot long, about say over a foot or 15 inches wide. You just fit it down into it. But I remember I was digging away and 
and I should have known. I was thrown the said the enemy would be that side. I was digging myself a miler and we were throwing all the dirt up on this side. And Quinlan came up calm and Quinlan says, Hey bye, what are you doing? I'm digging a trench, sir, you know. What they wouldn't say what the heck do you think I'm doing? <laughs> are you digging your own grave, boy? No, sir, I'm digging and he's he had it cropped on, you see. If you throw the dirt up on the side of the trench and a bomb lands, you're down in the trench. So the whole lot comes in and top it. And we forgot the basic is put the dirt on your ground sheet and sprinkle it around away from the trench. But he was that detailed about it. And we dug the trenches not in a straight line that way. We had them kind of zigzagged. So if you break a line that's straight, you're through and you come around. But if they got the fr- through the front line, which about 50 yards out there, one trench and one there, if they got to just have me to contend with here. Moves to restore order in the Katanga region begin a train of events for Commandant Pat Quinlan and A Company. On the morning of the 13th of September at 0400 hours in Elizabethville, the United Nations carried out an operation called Operation Mortar an offensive operation against the Katanga uh, regime, i.e. they took over, tried to take over the radio station, the post office and the newspaper offices. They wanted to take away the voice of President Chambe. But the problem was they never told the people in Jadaville were going to do this. And this has been the kernel of the problem for 60 years. Why did they not tell the people? They even had the, what they called the operation order, up board, uh, in writing in writing a week or more beforehand and A Company was not mentioned in the operation order. I have the operation order and A Company is not there, not even to the extent of saying A Company, be on the alert, stay where you are, but be ready. Not even that. They were not even shown on the operation order. As well as that, my father was in uh, Elizabethville three or four days before, around the 8th or 9th, if I remember correctly uh, from reading, to meet uh, the battalion commander and Conor Cruz O'Brien, they never told him then. Two days before one of his captains was in uh, for a medical check in uh, Elizabethville, they never told him and he met them. And then when they were attacked on the morning of the 13th, uh, at, they got five minutes warning. A phone call came from Elizabethville, the orderly officer. Uh, he took the phone call to say that the attack on the f- four o'clock in the morning is successful. What attack? Never heard of what we didn't know about. He ran to tell my father. My father says, "Get everybody into the trenches quickly." Before he could, they could do anything. They were attacked. There was a, a garage across the road called Porfini Garage, and it was ran by a mercenary. Their barracks was just down. As you look at the garage, it was down to the left of the garage. So he phoned them to say we were all going to mass. Billy Keane remembers to this day the beginning of a five-day ordeal. I remember there were a bit of it because I was cooking that morning and I got up I woke up around half five and walked across to the cookhouse and I was cooking away and the next thing I could hear like gravel I thought was and I said to them, they said, there's no wind. And it was tracers coming. So I remember 
Three Volkswagen pickups drove in full of troops. Three jeeps came rushing in and it was uh, one private Dell saw them, uh, fired a Gustav which wouldn't hit anything after 20 yards but at least it alerted Sergeant John Monaghan who jumped up behind the Vickers machine gun and took out the first jeep. John Monaghan, Lord be good, John was coming out with a, with a towel wrapped around his neck after shaving and jumped into the Vickers machine gun trench and opened up over over their heads and threw them, he should have opened but I didn't go to Mass that morning. I had a burst of machine gun fire. And I thought it was the guard, one of the guards letting off accidentally. And then I heard the reply, a, a lot of fire. And I, the only way it sticks in your head, so I got my machine guns. There was a few small arms fire hitting the sheet iron, and I seen the threats were coming. I knew we were in. And I immediately ran from... My place to the, where the old Keir is. And he took off like a greyhound, jumping trenches and of the to alert Compton Quinn. Very shortly after that, all hell broke loose. And it started from there. We all got to our trenches. And the fellows that... There's a sergeant on and got on a machine gun and he held them with some other... Willie Reedy was there. They, were, they took them and they gave us chance to occupy our trenches. The rest of the jeeps milled around behind that, and at the same time there were uh, enemy coming through the bush. The idea was they discovered from the mercenaries when they were prisoners later that the idea was that the jeeps would come in with machine guns on the back and would machine gun everybody who was at morning mass. They knew where they would be at mass. And then the enemy coming in through the bush would mop up. They thought the whole thing would be over in an hour and that the Irish would have been all killed or captured. And the fighting went on for... Not so long, in fact, ten or quarter an hour, and then it it stopped. They they were driven back, anyway. But, but anyway, they went off, and about an hour then, all hell broke loose. And at eleven, they had a right go at it. Yeah. Everything. My father was aware of this coming attack because there were two men in Jadaville who were not anti uh, the uh, United Nations like everybody else was. They were ex RAF. Second World War. I remember the Second World War was only over 16 years. And uh, one was a doctor and the other was an estate agent, if my memory is correct. And the doctor drove through the Irish camp and the Irish camp was on both sides of the main road between Jadaville and Elizabethville, about a mile from the centre of Jadaville. And he slowed down when he came to one of the Irish trenches and dropped a piece of paper on the ground and shouted for Commandant Quinlan. Uh, the piece of paper showed two things. One, you're going to be attacked again at 11 o'clock because all the talk, they knew what was happening. And the second thing was a good reference for a 75 millimeter French howitzer hidden about 1,500 yards away. So the result was when they were attacked at 11, they were ready for it. And uh, that doctor got into some trouble later uh, for not being against the Irish. Um, the howitzer was knocked out by a small little 60 millimeter mortar. The mortar crew is worth mentioning was commanded by 16 year old Matt Quinlan from Longford, helped by 16 year old Private Terence McMahon from uh, Balbriggan, and if I am correct, and I think I'm correct, by 17 year old Bobby Orr from Galway. They were little more than children really, Leo. Two of them were 15 years old. 
that I'm told, I was told by senior officers, they said, I remember meeting Mrs. So-and-so at the post office collecting her children's allowance when her son was fighting in Jadaville. There were 12 of them at least, uh, about uh, 16 years old, because a lot of, in those days, they lied about their age just to get a job. And the same happens in many armies, but it certainly happened in, in this case. I was worried when they started fire. I said to myself, will I ever see Ireland? My family. I, I busted out crying. It's a lonely time, that. It was lonely. Fear is, is a necessary thing. When you're afraid, the adrenaline is when you do things automatic. Your n- nerves are, are like violin strings, you know. You're in, at an awful state of alertness. The fear thing doesn't. The, the fear makes you that way. You know, you're, you're, everything is exaggerated. You're on a high, as it's said now. And did you fear death because you were married? You had a young family? You feared death, and you didn't give you the worst time was at night when you had time to think, and everything was every little sound, and you could see the stars, and you thought about Ireland five thousand miles away. Will you see it again? But and strike off in our conversation, and if you saw a fellow getting a bit too much. Jizz him up a bit, you know, we'll have a good old chat. So you kept each other going? Oh, I did, yeah. We were nearly taught that, in fact. It's estimated that between three and three and a half thousand eventually ended up attacking the Minjadaville, not all together, but they were coming in waves of about 600 at a time. That is in the reports. But you would say with the numbers that were against them, with the heavy artillery and everything else, they should have been annihilated. I can't understand why the Congolese, if they were better led, they would have taken us all that morning. But they were poorly trained, and, and during the fighting, they, they couldn't coordinate an attack. They would shell us, and if you know anything about military, when you're being shelled, you're ducking, you're down, and, you're, and that's when they should be coming. So when you woke up, they were there. Not woke up, looked at, they were, they were on top of you, see. But 20 minutes later, they, they'd attack. Actually, we were waiting for them. And the way the trenches were laid out the first day, he didn't like it after the first attack. So during the night, uh, the first night, they moved one comp- one platoon from the western side and moved it closer in so that they had everybody in an area about the size of a, a, a GA football field and much easier to control and manage. He go around to this, all the trenches and ask you how you were. So he would and ask you how are you getting on and all that and he come around at, at 6 to 7 o'clock in the morning so he was he was very alert so he was As someone who has served obviously in the army yourself you would have an insight into the type of pressure that your father must have been facing oh, yes. out there and the sense of isolation Yes There's a phrase called the loneliness of command and that had to prey on his mind obviously it would but he had a fantastic uh, crew with him. He had very good officers. He said that to me afterwards. He said they were brilliant. And he had a senior NCO by the name of Jack Prendergast, Company Sergeant Jack Prendergast, in the film played by Jason O'Mara. Company Sergeant Jack Prendergast, later Sergeant Major Jack Prendergast, he was an amazing guy. And himself and my father were so close in terms of 
knowing what the other was thinking, uh, anticipating what needed to be done, uh, looking after the man, and so on. So he was blessed with the likes of Jack Pendergast and also quartermaster Paddy Neville and the likes of John Monan, Walter Hagerty. I mean, they were the best of the best. None of them ever in action before, but they just seemed to know what was to be done. You're listening to Renmore's Finest, The Journey to Jadaville, a documentary on Galway Bay FM. Stay tuned for part two coming up after this break. The siege of Jadaville began on Wednesday the 13th of September 1961. After the second day, a ceasefire was sought by the Katangans to gather up their dead and the Irish honoured this. However, the Katangans broke the ceasefire and more fighting began. For Tom Gunn and the rest of A Company, each day brought its own challenge. Thursday, they threw, threw everything at us on Thursday. And I was in the trench for the, the three days and nights without ever moving and left. And Gary brought me back into a second trench. And we beat them off that Thursday, that was the evening before. That's when we nearly ran out of ammunition. It was, it was the, the worst day was Thursday. For so much fire, and from, they came in with the plane then and, and bombed us. He came in from the sun, which we didn't know about. We were looking, I thought he was coming in at treetop level, and the next thing, he was out of the dive when I saw him, and the two bombs hit behind me, about 50, and he came back a couple of times. But I took him on one day with, with the, the, the machine, when it was the second day he came in, and it was mentioned after that, the pilot said, who was the mad Irishman that stood up in the train? <laughs> that was you. Yeah, but I'm not looking for glory. I was foolish by that. I should have been. <laughs> but you get into such a state and say, come on, take me on. Back in Ireland, it was an anxious time for the families of the soldiers. Awaiting word on the fate of his father, Commandant Pat Quinlan and the others, Leo Quinlan says there was very little information to go on. The Irish authorities were getting snippets from BBC and places like that. A lot of it was misinformation or disinformation, which means disinformation deliberate. Uh, my mother had a phone, not many, very many phones in 1961, and she would get phone calls every few hours from, let's say, the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday, and then later when they were in prison. Uh, she'd get various phone calls and would um, uh, tell me, and I'd jump on a bicycle and I'd cycled to the various housing estates in Athlone. I couldn't cycle as far as Galway or Mullingar or Longford, but I cycled to the housing estates in Athlone to give them the latest information. And so almost every time my bicycle appeared at the beginning of a housing estate, they were all running out. They must have centuries out or something. And I would tell them what the latest was. And then on the Friday night, uh, the evening hurl said that uh, everybody's dead in Shadowville. Uh, officers executed by firing squad. And it was a very dark day that Friday night and on Saturday morning the wives of the other officers came from Galway, Mullingar and so on to my mother's house in Athlone and I remember they were talking about how can we have funerals with no bodies that was all all day Saturday was like that and we had uh, women coming for wives of the NCOs and men calling to my mother wondering is there any news and it wasn't a nice day it wasn't a nice day at all the wife of the second in command uh, Phyllis Byrne passed away a few years ago, a neighbour of ours in Salt Hill, came to me and put her arms around my shoulder and said, Leo, you're now the head of the family. 
you have to look after your mum and your younger brothers and sisters. I was 16. They were at home worried sick. They didn't know whether we were dead or alive. For 17-year-old John Gorman's family at the time, his trip to Jadaville was an unwelcome surprise. John, what does your family think of the whole thing? My mother didn't even know I was out there. (laughs) Because I didn't tell her. And she used to, she used to get down at night in the house and say the roses for the lads in Jadaville. Imagine. And the first she knew of it when she got a telegram from the department to say I was a prisoner. Imagine. Isn't it amazing to think that nobody died? I can't understand it. There was a fella down caught on a bullet went through the neck of his shirt. The bombs dropped and they wounded fellas and they didn't go into the trenches and you could hear the bullets whistling there was a miracle in fact a miracle at Jadaville they should have called it because uh, it was a mission that went wrong in New UN not with us with the government and the UN they're the people that was it for and we, we were the prawns and we How did that make you feel, Billy? It makes me angry when I think of it. After five days against an overwhelming force without suffering a single fatality, A Company had inflicted huge casualties on the enemy, some 300 dead and hundreds wounded. But with five of his own wounded, a lack of water and other supplies forced Commandant Quinlan to concede to ceasefire talks with his enemy, talks which rapidly turned to surrender. They looked for a second ceasefire. And, of course, Pat Quinlan being Pat Quinlan, he got round to Army Headquarters, or to the headquarters, the battalion headquarters in Elizabethville, and uh, he told them they were looking for another ceasefire here. And he said he was told that there were ceasefires going on in Elizabethville and they were going very well. And they had so many installations taken over, which they hadn't. So I suppose the way Pat looked at it was, if he didn't agree and something happened, he'd be blamed. So he agreed to ceasefire anyway. We were out in the open, every one of us, and we had our heavy weapons handed in. And needless to say, we had the firing pins taken out of them and kind of dismantled. So... When Menango came along and he looked for the company commander and the company commander had a habit, as I told you, of leaving them wait. So he approached the and went, saluted him and Menango told him, you're now being taken prisoners. I never called it a surrender, never. And if anyone said to me, oh, I said, no, we didn't. No, we didn't. And we didn't. And the light at Quinlan did what he did. We didn't run out of ammunition completely now. And anybody, nobody will contradict me on that. We had enough, not for another attack. We'd hold out for 10 minutes. But when they're attacking you and you run out of ammunition, they're going to kill you. You have you, and their their strike goes up, and you have had it. So Quinlan's 
decision to surrender, even though he probably knew we had um, enough, I had 10 rounds, that only lasted me, or 12 rounds, whatever it was. And when you were, you're stuck with your rifle then and your bayonet, and there's some, they'd, we were all be wiped out, in fact. Because when they're in the, the mood of attacking, and I'd be the same as a soldier, there's, it, it, unless it was a blatant hands-up thing, you'd, you'd kill off everybody. One of the officers said they were unhappy about having to lay down the arms, but as one corporal said, they didn't, they didn't need to attack us anymore. Wait 24 more hours and we'd all have been comatose. You know, five days without sleep and now suffering from dysentery and... Uh, all that kind of stuff. And uh, so we, we'd have been gone. They'd all have been annihilated. But the overriding uh, emotion my father had was that he wanted to bring all his men home alive. He promised people that he would bring them all home alive. And he said, we didn't come out here to kill Africans. We came out here to help and he wasn't going to let his brave men die for nothing. He said that in writing to a letter to my mother. I was not, um, I did not intend to let my brave men die for nothing. On the morning of the 18th of September, a company was taken into captivity. The men were bussed into Jadaville town and lodged at the Hotel Europe. The families back home got the phone call they had been waiting for. The soldiers were all alive, prisoners, but all alive. I got on my bicycle, cycled down, and uh, when I was telling people this, they were jumping for joy and crying for joy and so on. The wait began for the UN to negotiate the release of a company. Representatives from the International Red Cross visited prisoners on the 26th of September and reported that they were in good health and high spirits. On his way back to Ireland after a fact-finding visit to the Congo, Ireland's Minister for External Affairs at the time, Frank Aiken, gave his assessment. They're all very well and been very well treated. I was speaking to a welfare officer who saw the 26 who were captured in Elizabethville and uh, we were in contact with the uh, people who saw the uh, prisoners in Jadaville and they're all in high spirits and been very well treated. We were moved from Jadaville to Halwesi because we're too near Elizabethville. They thought we might escape. So Halwesi was a, a disused airport. And it had, we were in where the, the, the pilots and the hostesses and that. It was a lovely building, you know, running water and all. We were well looked after. We were always well looked after, but there's always the the thing with the take reprisals. There were a lot of them killed, you see. But uh, I remember when we moved into Carweezy, uh, we were told empty our kit bags. We don't need these old big sack things. So we emptied them out anyway, and Jack Pepper, Lord rest Jack, didn't a nine millimetre round come out of his kit bag. Now, what could you do with a nine millimetre round? So your man hit him a belt of the rifle. By Jesus, I can tell you if he did. Quindon ran down. He said, you don't ever touch my men again, ever. To establish a link with home, a novel system of getting messages between Ireland and the Jadaville prisoners began. 
the army gave me an old spool tape recorder and I went around to as many houses I could and taking and I kept a list on a big sheet of foolscap who's number one Mrs. McCabe and her daughter Valerie who's number two three four five and so on and I'd take hello daddy we're okay we're praying for you the wife saying hello Martin and so on nice message and uh, we sent it out by Red Cross uh, my father got it he'd read out and he called in Sergeant McCabe and he played a minute and a half for him and then he taped over those and sent them back to me with the list Leo number one is Mrs. McCabe number two is yeah. and I go back to the houses in that order and I play it and you see the tears in their eyes and crying and so on For the first time some of these recordings from prison camp are now being broadcast Now to the people in Galway this is Captain Donnelly again stating to officers, NCOs, and men and their families in Galway that everything is fine. Hello, Martin Greeny. Uh, I missed the All-Ireland being in Croke Park, but we got it here on Monday from Radio Brazzaville. Best wishes to all your family. We are being looked after well, but at the same time, I wish that we could get out of here soon. Now, this is Colin Packman again. And now I'm introducing Ankara Sean McBurraha of Ankiet Carr as your first speaker. To my wife, hello Barbara. How are you all the children? Also all the neighbours in Shantala. I know you are worrying about me for the past few weeks. But there is no need for that anymore. Things are back to normal here again, so cheer up now. To Michael. Hello Michael. How do you like to be going to the tech? I hope you do help ma'am with the housework in your spare time, but let that not stop you from playing football or any other games, so be a good boy. To Porrick, hello Porrick, I hope you are well. Are you back to school again? I hope you are a good boy. I'll bring you a present from the Congo. And now we give you an excited shingle to Moss Mokdanaka. I'm very glad to get this opportunity to say hello to my mother and father, also to my brothers and sisters at number 18 Okanina Road, Chancellor. I want you to know that I'm perfectly safe here in Jadaville and we've all been treated very well, so don't be worried about me. The first battalion boys here have warned me to give their best wishes to our homebirds. Balbriggan is going great guns in our table tennis competition and Robert R is catching up on his sleep. And now I'm going to introduce to you Corporal Quinn. And before I introduce him, I would like one word of congratulations to Lieutenant Shoyok. You can be proud of this young corporal that you trained. I can assure you of that. I will say no more. Cameron Queen. This is Corporal Timmy Queen saying hello to everybody in the Cape Cod, especially to Lieutenant Joyce and Lieutenant Casey, BQMS McDonough, Sergeant Major McHugh, CS Brophy, Sergeant Spill and Mick McGowan, to Paddle in the NCO's mess, and to Captain Murphy reminding him of that dinner when we get home. I'd like CQMS Minogue to convey my greetings to you know who. Tell her I'm still alive and intend staying that way. And now I'm introducing Sergeant Higgerty. He was one of our wounded, and believe it or not, he is now sitting on a chair. Well, as you have heard from the boys, all our case caught men are sitting up and ready to go. The only one who is not sitting up is yours truly. And when I tell you that I'll never be able to show my war wounds, you'll guess where I was too bulky. So, Phil McGowan, take lavish care of our three precious recruits and keep their tails down. Young Matty Quinlan is too shy to speak himself, but let someone assure his father that he was no way backward or shy when it counted. He'll stand and well, and we can't keep him fed. 
It's not that we know that prayers were never so faithfully said. My final word is to assure the Canacy that all these young men were marvellous and will hold up their heads with the best. The one thing, it wasn't good for them in prison camp uh, and it was, to, it was, let's say, they were vulnerable and yet every single one of them said, don't worry about my, me, uh, Kathleen, we're being treated very well, we all see you at Christmas and this. They hadn't a clue what was going to happen. But one after the other, every one of the men sent messages to keep the wives and families at home, let's say, calm. But, as Tom Gunn explains, despite best efforts, sometimes the information from Ireland didn't reach Jadaville intact. The fighting started on the 13th, and Theresa was expecting around the same time. So, no war, no nothing, and Lieutenant Kerry came one to me when we were about a month in prison. He said, I have good news for you, Private Grant. You're the father of a daughter, and the daughter both doing fine. Great, yeah. When I arrived home to the son, James, James is still, I do call James Cuddles, he's a guy. After a company and other UN prisoners were moved to Colwisi on the 11th of October, a Katanga-wide ceasefire came into effect on the 14th, which provided for the exchange of prisoners. And then we were told we were being exchanged. Now Colwisi is 180 miles from Jadaville is 80 miles. So back through the jungle from Colwisi in open trucks. That was in open, an old bus, as you know, 180 miles into Elizabeth Fell, to a disused airport where the UN took prisoners as well, you see. And um, there was an exchange of prisoners. We would be given back to and the, the, the prisoners the UN took, Katangese would be let go their way. But they refused to, to, to exchange that day. We stayed in Jadaville that night on, on, outside the Euro Hotel because we were exhausted. We couldn't get back another 80 miles. And I remember Commander McQueen going around to hold us. We were lying on the side on the, in the street in front of the hotel. Some, and he said, lie down. Will you lie down? And let none. we were exhausted. We were nearly exhausted. But that was a great old cant after Philip. Will you lie down, boy? As Charlie Cooley explains, A Company had a plan if the next attempted prisoner exchange failed. So we went back and we were were talking, we were all talking about ourselves, the the soldiers and uh, Pat Quinlan and all that. And they were talking about if it happened a second time, if we weren't exchanged prisoners, we'd have to take over the bus. But to be most of us killed. But that was the thing we had to do if we, did, if we didn't exchange prisoners the second time. A company was released on the 25th of October 1961. Most of the men returned home by Christmas of that year, but Billy Keane recalls an unwelcome reception. When we came down the runway, you were told, gagged, actually, remember, you don't talk to anybody. You don't give interviews. You don't go on airways or anything. There'd be consequences. And once that was mentioned. And who said that? An officer. They brought us in at the back of the airport. And we were lined up there like in the middle of the night now, that's around four in the morning. And then they put us on a train to Mullingar. And the 
at Lone Les went on to at Lone and the Galway lads went on. We got out in, in Mullingar and put into a big truck in about seven in the morning on a, a winter's morning and we have to I met Teresa at the station and there's a dreary old didn't matter so long as she was there and the rest of it couldn't give a damn if the Lord Mayor didn't arrive, you know. Brought up to the barracks, took all her no other stuff. One quartermaster, he nearly wanted to charge us for the stuff we hadn't after we, you know, like equipment. It was about one o'clock when we arrived in that lawn. Well, I was expecting to see numbers of the barracks be there, which was normal that time. And all that was there was the only officer, the BOS. That's all. We marched onto the square, arrived home. Just welcome in there, say, what's the Cornwall like? I said, it was all right. But any further than that, I said, no, I'm, I'm on the road. Can't talk about it. That went on for, I think, 50, 45 years, 46. They had a reception in Galway at the uh, Civic Reception, Civic Reception at Lone, Longford, Mullingar. Every regional newspaper was hailing them. We had TDs writing letters to them, women, uh, mothers uh, writing in the newspapers, thank you for bringing my son home, letters to the newspapers, uh, letters, uh, Christmas cards from the wives of NCOs in that Lone, from Mrs. Prendergast, Mrs. Neville, Mrs. Monaghan, Mrs. Is, to my mother, dear Mrs. Quinlan, Happy Christmas, and we'd just like to thank you for your great support during our troubled time. My mother used to go around to the houses to the other wives, you know, so we had all that. So they had tremendous uh, reception. That began to wane, not in the minds of the people in those places I've mentioned, but at the hierarchy. Despite recommendations by Commandant Pat Quinlan and others that 33 members of A Company should have their bravery at Jadaville formally recognised, the Defence Forces decided against giving any members of A Company military medals. Down at the station in Galway, we were called cowards. Even above in the barracks in Renmore, we were called cowards. So we were, no. And how did you feel about that, Charlie? I felt very low and very ill. Very low when, when I was called a coward. And I wasn't a coward, so I wasn't. None of us was a coward, so we weren't. We'd, had to, we'd done what we had to do and that was it. With my association with the US Army War College, what has emerged is that they are saying in the War College that the syndrome known as moral injury has badly affected Jadaville veterans. And moral injury, as described in the book Moral Injury, Moral Wounds, is where soldiers suffer some traumatic experience and are then betrayed by higher authority. And that is Jadaville in a nutshell. And it follows on then the effects of moral injury. They go silent. They don't talk about it. I felt you were better off not to talk about it. In those days now. Because there was a lot of rows, a lot of incidents over this, over Jadavan. Down the town then you got the old snide. Yeah? Remember going into a pub and 
one of the local heroes for my age. I didn't think to the bar, I didn't think you serve cowards here, you know. And I looked at the barman and he put up the drink and I looked at him and he never said a word. So I walked out. I remember when I came back out of leave. Then as I walked in the barracks, I was getting abused everywhere. I, I, I reported it to the, the CS of my company. And he told the CEO, but there was no follow up whatsoever. And then when you go downtown, I used to go training. And the soldiers said, never overseas, shout at you. Another hardly stick you should be carrying the white flag. But it was the, the army authorities. And people that were so bitter. Fellow soldiers, I never thought that they're turning people like that. And this moral injury goes down into the families, children and grandchildren and so on. It doesn't just stop with the veteran. The second uh, thing about moral injury effect is, um, can be alcoholism, it can be mental issues, and I'm told that two of the lads in Jadaville ended up in mental homes. Uh, it can be broken relationships, and that has happened a lot. It can be uh, depression leading to suicide, and we know that that's happened in five cases, and one officer recently told me probably 10 cases. Um, I know, uh, let's say, children of veterans who are saying, yeah, that's my dad. My father never used the word love to me. I know one veteran who told me, he says, I could never tell my wife I loved her after Jadaville. Even though it went on, he's a very happy married man. He dotes on his wife. Absolutely, but he couldn't use the word love. It affected people in different ways. Uh, a lot of people committed suicide, and, you know, and, and a lot of people were just never right after. And that included myself. Yeah, it affected my life a bit. I, I overdid the drink, maybe. Lots of them did, and I, I got back on my feet. Yeah. Teresa went through a bit of unnecessary hassle. Not hassle, but you know, wouldn't be the best of company, probably, at times. I never no abuse on, but I went to bit. It's hard to talk about it. Mm. Still fighting. There was a meritorious medal. There was some talk about um, uh, uh, the development of a new medal between 61 and 64. That's independent Senator Jared Crowell, a Defence Forces veteran. It ultimately culminated in the Distinguished Service Medal and it was Quinlan, Quinlan's belief that the people he recommended... Now, do bear in mind, Pat Quinlan didn't recommend all 33. He recommended, I think it was nine people for medals, uh, for Distinguished Service and Military Medals for Gallantry. He believed that they should have given them the Distinguished Service Medal. There were also people nominated by um, Lieutenant Knightley, by Lieutenant Curie, by NCOs and officers of a company. So that's where the 33 comes from. Some of the 
rather unusual things. Some of the men who got uh, DSMs uh, for their uh, service in in the Congo at the time got it for Elizabethville, got it for the bridge, but the chief of staff at the time, we are told, ordered that the word Jadavil be removed from any citation that was given. Now, if that's true, that is a very poor reflection on the chief of staff at the time, General Sean McKeown. But it is the bad blood that's left. It's a very strange situation. The one thing that I can't figure out in 1962, 1965, 1971, when three medal boards sat looking at the whole Jadavil situation and others, other medals for the Congo and everything. Why did they not ask my father and the other officers who recommended people to come before the board and explain? Never did. This, this to me is a glaring error on, in the system, in the system. You know, so uh, that can't be explained to, to my satisfaction anyway. Tom Gunn was one of those recommended for a Distinguished Service Medal for his gallantry at Jadaville. How do you deal with that mentally, Tom, after all you've been through? And then you'd be kind of expecting, you know... Most of them couldn't. A lot of... Five of them committed suicide after Jadaville. A lot of them ended up in the gutter in England. One little chap, a 16-year, he, he shot himself. He was a Quinlan, by the way, in Australia. And he was recommended for the Military Medal for Gallantry. If they gave him and the men that were recommended at that stage, we'd fly through the ranches. And 60 years later were said, I would recommend you're not getting it, but one more medal won't make me any braver. John Gorman single-handedly began and led the campaign to get official recognition for A Company of the 35th Battalion. And so an 18-year-long journey for vindication began. It had to be done. Now, I promised Pat Quinlan one night. I was having a few pints with him in the Royal Hotel, you know, at Lone. And he never talked very much about Jadaville now, to be honest. And I said to him, do you see what was done to you and your company, Pat? And he looked at me like that. And he said nothing. I said, well, I'm going to tell you now. One day they will pay and pay dearly for what they had done. When I started, what I actually done was I went round as many local radio stations as I could. And I just talked about Jadaville because simply nobody knew about it. Nobody knew about it. So my aim was to get it into Leinster House. So I rang uh, a Donegal man, Denny McGinley, and Denny was spokesperson for defence. And yeah, I'll certainly help you, John. But he rang me that night and he says to me, John, what is Jadaville? Now, even he, as a politician, pretty well-educated man, didn't even know. Nobody knew. When he left to do John, John was, knew a lot of people, but he had our backing, and he knew carry on with it and say what he wanted to say. Only for John, I'd say, I don't know whether there'll be anything. He got a poor reception, shall we say, from the higher ranks. I can never understand. You see, they compared it with, with um, 
Rourke's Drift. You see the film Zulu. And they only let, they only fought for 12 hours at Rourke's Drift. They were on the same amount of people. There was about 180 of the. They were a Welsh regiment. There was four Irishmen there that won Vic. The doctor was Irish, in fact. He won the VC. And the Zulu took their cattle. That was the victory for the Zulu. They took, and they were, after 12 hours, we were five days and five nights. And 11 Victoria Crosses awarded at Rourke's Drift, the, the highest for any single action. Fair play to them. You know, we're not begrudgers. There was a, an article in the Westmead at one stage, and it's by a, a senior department official, and he said, there is no more being done about Jadaville at this time. So I replied to that, and everything like that has to go to the minister. So the minister read it, and he phoned me one day. Will you do? Yeah. He said, okay, tell me what happened out there. Tell me what you think was wrong. 90% of it was wrong. And uh, he said, okay, I give you my advisor's mobile number, ring him Wednesday, and I tell him when I can talk, sit down and talk to you. In December 2004, John got the call he had been waiting for from Minister of Defence at the time, Willie O'Dee. Well, when I got the phone call, I got it, it was at home of a Friday morning, frying a few old bangers and rashers and that, and the phone rang. It was to tell me, Willie said, Willie O'Dee, we were getting vindication, recognition, and a monument in custom barracks. And I'll be honest with you, I burst out crying. It went on from that, and, and then I, I started, and I, I got the 156 names of every man on that monument. And I worked damn hard to get that done. But the campaign wasn't over. I was pushing for medals, not knowing exactly how many medals, and it took a few years to find out how many. And at the same time, here in Galway, you had uh, Philip Cribben. He was a history teacher, is a history teacher in the community college, right? And his students took up this thing and they started asking about medals for Jadaville and they got uh, various TDs uh, and people here interested in it. And Noel Grealish raised the topic in the doll and the questions one day. And I was invited to go up. I did. Uh, and I brought two or three v- um, Jadaville veterans with me and also some of the uh, Philip Cribben and some of the students and students from Malahide Community College who took it up as well. The thing was that when we met Andy Kenny talking about the medals, at that stage we didn't know how many. We thought it would be about eight or nine medals. And Andy Kenny said, what medals are we talking about exactly in his office after the, t- the thing happened in the doll? And I told him exactly. We're talking about medals for bravery. And he said, OK, now I understand. Uh, in 2015, I spoke to Simon Coveney, who was Minister for Defence at the time. And I, he said, I, I look into it, I don't know what I can do. And I said, OK, so then I got the idea from somebody else about why not have a unit citation. So I got in touch with Simon Coveney's office and said, let's run with the unit citation first while we are uh, chasing the medals. And I, within 24 hours, he must have done something because within 24 hours, I got a call from Army headquarters. What's this about unit citation? How do we do it? I said, you're asking me. 
do it like the British Army, sorry, the American Army or the French Army. A unit citation is something that everybody that belongs to that unit forever after, if that unit lives to be, exists for 100 years afterwards and somebody joins it 50 years after the event, they'll all be allowed to wear this medal that people say, oh, you, you belong to that group that were in Shadowville many years ago. So a unit citation. And with that unit citation comes a medal insignia that everybody can wear on their chest. And and the unit citation is written into, into military history. So that was accepted by the uh, Department of Defense and the Army. And it was announced by me uh, when in the town hall in Galway in 2016 when the Galway Film Festival showed the film Siege of Jadaville. And I was got permission from the Department of Defense to say that the unit citation of Medellin Insignia would be coming. And then they gave the unit citation in September, I think August, September 2016 in Atlone to everybody. And Paul Kyo said the uh, Medellin Insignia will be coming in six weeks' time. It came 15 months later. And they made a good job of it. They called it the Bon Jadaville, a special medal. In December 2017, the specially commissioned on Bon Jadaville was awarded to each member of A Company 35th Infantry Battalion and to the family representatives of deceased members. I was like a feather, I was floating on air. <laughs> I didn't even need a bit that day. I wanted everyone to get their medals before I got mine. The only thing I was missing from it was my father and mother. But I... Got to my family there. But it was a marvellous deal. For John Gorman, the awarding of Ambon Jadaville signalled the end of his extensive campaign for recognition for those involved in the siege. In my book, the Ambon Jadaville medal, to me, it's worth two dozen DSMs. It's a very unique medal, and it's beautiful, and there is only 156 of them in the world and I I would not give my Amban Jadaville back medal back I'm very proud of that medal For Leo Quinlan and others the campaign for medals for bravery was still the focus But then they thought that's the end everybody's got a medal but they didn't understand the difference between that medal and the medal for bravery that plus the citation would have done me. I wasn't expecting it. Now, I was recommended, I'm not disappointed that I didn't get the. That, the Bon Jadaville is unique. There's only 155 of them. There'll be more sauce after than Victoria Cross. <laughs> and the citation is a great honour. We're the only ones that got a citation. That was enough. And Leo Quinlan and everyone, John Gorman, uh, that would have done us. And there'd be less of this disappointment. It's not for me, it's for my relations and wife and extended family. They were all saying, Randall got this, but he didn't. I have enough of one more medal isn't going to make me any bravery. for it. But Pat Quinlan thought you deserved it. He did. In the British Army, an officer recommends a man for a, 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 a medal for distinguished service or bravery. They were never refused. They're the men that saw what went on.
In 2020, an independent review group was set up by the Defence Force's Chief of Staff to revisit the case for recognising those who were recommended for medals at Jadaville. We've got a board going here. Fine fellas. And I was interviewed as in. And that has to get them. They did what they thought was right. But to me, they asked me questions and a two-year-old wouldn't ask me, you know. The report is 450 pages. 450, 10 pages were disorder. To the disappointment of many, in July of 2021, the report of the Independent Review Group found that having examined the evidence, there was a case for awarding a posthumous DSM to Commandant Quinlan. But the group found there was no merit in reopening the recommendations of the medals boards. The results were as... Uh I anticipated from conversations uh, I had with the authorities one month before the review board ever sat. So I was very disappointed but not surprised. And again, therein lies the problem. So, as you know, at the moment, uh, there's a a court injunction, high court injunction put in against uh, the authorities doing anything further on this until a judicial review has taken place on the whole process related to the award of medals in the army and as it relates to Jadaville and this uh, independent review group support. While the men received an apology from the state, the campaign for medals is now the subject of legal proceedings led by Leo Quinlan and Senator Gerard Crockwell. I served with guys in Renmore Barracks. Charlie Cooley stands out in my mind. Charlie Cooley was just a soldier, a decent sort of guy. I never once heard anything about Jadaville. And when I did, when I saw Cooley's name on it, I was down in Galway for um, a a talk on Jadaville. And Charlie was there in a wheelchair. And uh, at the end of it all, I went over to Charlie and I said to him, because I never knew that, Charlie. And he says, we never spoke about it. He says, you know, it it was better off left where it was. And the whole thing of the white feathers and the cowardice and all of that, none of that resonated with me at that time because to me, Charlie was just a guy we could have a bit of slagging with. Bobby Orr, another one, uh, Tom Gunn, all the guys, right? You know, you could laugh and joke with them. And the night the report came out, well, should I say the morning the report came out of the independent review group from Jadaville. Uh, myself and a number of senators decided we would take sections of it and see what we could do. It was very clear and very everybody knew where I was, so my I went straight to the recommendations. But when I was speaking all of the time in the in the Shannon, in the chamber, as I was speaking, making my speech, my declaration, whatever you want to call it. All of the time I had in the back of the, my head, Charlie Cooley sent to me, Crockwell, where's my medal? And I cannot believe that they've done what they've done. I, I find it so, so, so disheartening. I cannot believe the cruelty of what they have done. For Charlie Cooley and others who were recommended, the wait continues.
I don't know why I was recommended for it, but he mo- I must have done something right when it, when I was recommended for it. So I must, and they're not given to it after all. So they're not. How it's do you feel about that? Ah, it's a shame. He's the Cumberland, Pat Quinlan got his medal and his son said he's not going to give it to him That's until we get our medals. What would getting the medal mean to you, Charlie? Oh, it means a lot. mean a lot because I was recommended for it. So that would be make my day, by God. I'd wear it on my coat every day to show it. So that I got it. I can't give Charlie his medal. And Charlie is a very elderly, unwell man today. I hope he doesn't mind me saying that. But I owe Charlie. And it's not Ger Crockwell that owes Charlie. I, as a citizen of this country, and every citizen of this country owes Charlie. We cannot... We cannot repay what we did to them. These guys, they gave so much and we took it. And when we finished taking it, we took everything else they had. Whatever the outcome, the bravery and sacrifice of the men who survived Jadaville is evident and recognised by a new generation. Following a wreath-laying ceremony at Renmore Barracks for the 60th anniversary of the siege in September of 2021, Tom Gunn, John Gorman, Charlie Cooley and a number of the veterans came together in Flannery's Hotel, Galway City. I was there that evening when something unexpected happened. A number of the young bar staff arrived down to the veterans' table with a tray of drinks for the soldiers. Drinks that the young staff had bought themselves to show their appreciation for the service given by the men they found themselves serving on the night. Afterwards, they told me why. I had seen the movie, obviously, and that was a big thing about just knowing about it. And I was literally just dropping drinks down, and one of the lads mentioned that they were there. And I was, I was immediately like starstruck, like, and I was told about how one of them was buried in a trench and that. And I just thought that's unbelievable, just what they did for the country and the way they were treated afterwards is just horrible. And it's just, I think they deserve the recognition. A lot of people should know about it, like. Yeah, I would say the same as well about the movie. You know, I watched that as well, and. Yeah, Sean just came in and said, yeah, you know, one of them was actually in there. Or a few of them were. I was like amazed. I was, thought that was amazing. You know, we have to get a few pictures with them. I'm not leaving here without a picture or something, you know. I suppose the funny thing is a lot of them guys were around your own age when this happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's even that's more right. amazing. I couldn't could imagine. Say, yeah. I just could not imagine going over there and doing that. No. In fact, well, I was successful with them like, yeah. Expecting nothing and then turning so south, like, it's just great for what they did. Makes me proud. So I, I can stand and say that I served my country. So I did. The people that should be doing something are not moving. Hopefully, within your lifetime, there will be a resolution to the medals. Yeah, but will we all be gone? We are the lucky ones. We know what. The government didn't, didn't do. But there's a lot of people looking up at the sky today. They don't know what ha- ever happened. They're the forgotten ones. But they're not forgotten by, by the air company.
can see it means a lot to you. something for the country. But a lot of people never achieve it. An American general probably passes the best in that famous barracks, the fighting 69th, massive place in New York. 69th fought in the American Civil War. They fought in every war. And the best com compliment was a few generals that when we were all in a, in the barracks and having a great whole time now. And uh, the, the American general, you guys, he said, do you realize you guys, you guys with your blue, you saved us from tw fighting another 20 wars by what you did. Never got a compliment like that from my own generals. I was not a reason why. I was not to make reply. Ours but to do and die. This programme was supported by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.